Now, I want to be very clear about this, though. We are very good at missing the point. Not just that, oh, wow, I'm so silly of me, I missed that. The point that we're missing is the point we want to miss. So let's debate by all means, though we usually don't do it about the Good Samaritan, but let's debate anything we want to debate, but not whether you help your enemy if you find him in the ditch. Let's not get into that. Let's not, let's not even get into, in a Jewish context, could there be Good Samaritans? So let's talk about something else. Let's talk about whether two denarii is enough for a couple of days' rent. So it's not for me with Luke and Matthew that, oh, I wish people would take it as a parable rather than history. I would be willing to say to somebody, okay, take them both as history. Now you're happy. It happened exactly the way it said there. However you put Matthew and Luke together, that's the way it happens. Now, how do we get peace on earth? Do we get it from Caesar the Augustus, whom Luke has just mentioned? Or do we get from Jesus? And it sounds like God in Christmas Planet Earth. I'm Seth, your host. This is the Can I Say This at Church podcast. Happy Christmas, everyone. Very, very Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. Happy whatever you want to use. I don't think the words matter because we're celebrating life and we're celebrating Christ intentionally. So glad uh, that we get to do this and that we make it a purposeful thing. Today, I talked with John Dominic Croissant, who is brilliant. We talk about kind of the, the Christmas story and we talk about it as a parable. Like, what the early church was trying to get at when they used it, why they maybe wrote it the way they did, maybe why Paul doesn't talk about the Christmas story all that much. And so John Dominic comes from the Christmas story in a way that a lot of us are not really engaging in. And for months now, uh, since recording this, really not known how it sits with it. It's, it's, it's stuck with me and I think about it daily. And so I really hope that you'll get as much out of this conversation as I have. And, and I've been challenged to grow and learn and pursue this more. And it's leading me as of recording this now, first day of December, uh, it's leading me to to places that I didn't know that I could go, and it's it's stretching my faith in healthy ways. And so I really hope that you enjoy this conversation with John Dominic Croissant. Here we go. I wish they weren't true, but home is here where you are, with me and Christmas and God. Uh, John Dominic Croissant, thank you so much for um, coming on to the Can I Say This at Church podcast. Very glad to be with you, Seth. For those in my circle of, of listenership, there's a lot of Protestant-ish in, in my listenership, and so I'm afraid that maybe a few people listening won't know a whole, whole lot about you. So can you in brief just kind of give me your theological upbringing and then kind of how that leads you into what you do now? Well, I spent five years at a classical boarding school in Ireland, which meant that I learned Greek and Latin five years apiece before I ever read a New Testament or heard of a New Testament particularly. So I read the Roman classics, which is maybe a very good idea. I think nobody should be allowed to read the New Testament for the read Virgil's Aeneid. Really? Fine, really. I'm dead serious because what you get then is a good dose, even though I didn't appreciate it at all, certainly of Roman imperial theology. And then when you find out that people are saying that Jesus is Lord and Son of God and God incarnate and Savior of the world, don't say, ooh, wow, these weird names somebody invented. Say, wow, he's taking on the Roman emperor. He's just taken all his fame, all his big titles from the Roman emperor and given them to a Jewish peasant. Wow, we're in a revolutionary state here. So you're not surprised when you find that Jesus gets himself executed. (laughs) Of course. So when I got into the New Testament, I didn't have the scandal that some even my colleagues seem to have with fundamentalism, taking it all literally. I was ready to take it seriously Mm -hmm. and not at all literally at all. But I figured if Caesar was son of God, you didn't explain to Caesar that, you know, you're just a metaphor, Caesar, so cool it. (laughs) 
Yes, you're imperial highness. Of course, you're son of God. <laughs> so, by the time I read the New Testament, I said, okay, so now the challenge is, if you had a son of God around, what would he look like? Would he look like a Jesus or like a Caesar? And I could see, oh, yeah, they ain't the same type of guy. So it's as if you're having a presidential debate between us, Caesar and Christ. Um, and what would the platforms be in each case? How would they be different? Is it just that one guy's a nicer you know, personality? No, I think it has to do with programs and, and policies and things like that. So I, I was sort of ready for the New Testament when I got there, to be honest with you. Do you feel like, and you said it earlier, many, myself included, why do you think that we fell off the ledge of reading things so literal and so fundamental, fundamental, fundam, fundamentalist? That's the <laughs> word. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. My, my vocabulary isn't up to par on the weekends. My brain checks out. Everybody needs a break. But how do you feel? Why do you think or when do you think we kind of jumped off that ledge of here's the way that we read it. And if you don't read it this way, then you're not Christian. Exactly. It's the dark underbelly of the Enlightenment. I mean, the Enlightenment was a magnificent achievement in terms of science. It, it took the dead hand of the church away from science and from history and opened it up. And that was right, necessary, good, and I have no way I can to criticize that. But, for example, the word for knowledge in Latin was scientia. Knowledge, all knowledge, mm -hmm. not just some kind of knowledge. But all of a sudden in the Enlightenment, the only type of knowledge was science coming from Scientia. So we narrowed, narrowed, narrowed. It, it was an understandable reaction. Science had been so denigrated and controlled by the church and, you know, with Galileo and everything else. So, yeah, we want, you had to emancipate it. Mm -hmm. As in so many emancipations and liberations, some weird stuff got liberated. And I think we lost our sense of metaphor. Mm -hmm. And of the profundity of metaphor, I hear people saying to me, oh, well, that's just a metaphor. And I try to tell them that metaphor creates reality. And then we also lost our sense of parable. So even though Jesus himself, when he wanted to say something real important about God or the kingdom of God, made up a story. And then we kind of scandalized that some of the New Testament writers might make up stories about Jesus. Since they picked up maybe the bad habit from him of making up stories about God. Hmm. So we lost our sense of metaphor, parable, symbol. Oh, it was fine as decoration, of course. Nobody has a problem with decorating stuff with metaphors. But the idea that metaphor might create reality and that if you have a bad metaphor, you might doom yourself. I mean, the thousand-year-old Reich is a metaphor. It wasn't a good one. Hmm. It looked like a good one in the beginning. Yeah. It wasn't a livable metaphor. So metaphors create reality. And if you live that metaphor, then it becomes real for you. Yeah. So be very careful about your metaphors. Well, and, and to be to be more correct about it, just be very careful with your words in general. Um, As we know at the moment, be very careful about what you say because rhetorical violence leads very easily to physical violence. Yeah, I know, definitely. Well, this at recording, this is the day after the shooting at the synagogue in, in Pennsylvania. And so, yeah, it's it's easy enough to give lip service to violence and then play coy or insincere and surprised when actual violence happens because of the way that we speak and treat others. But that is not why I brought you on. Matter of fact, I will be happy to bring you back on to talk about that. That is one of my passions, is talking about that. But I also find that in today's economy of words and in the economy of thought and church, that people get really angry when you start talking about, you know, if your words that you say are this and your actions are this, those two don't jive well together. Those two, you're not, you're not being genuine to either yourself or to others. Yeah. I don't think. But so what do you do now? So you said Ireland and now you're in Florida. What's going on there? Of course, I um, entered a Roman Catholic religious order, a mm -hmm. 13th century monastic order in, in Ireland. It, there was kind of a recruiting station in Ireland for the American province. So I knew I was coming out of Ireland. And in fact, that's what excited me. Mm -hmm. What excited me at 16 when I entered the order in 1950 is, wow, I thought this was the most 
thrilling life she could lead. It was nothing like giving up my life for Jesus. Anything like I thought, wow, Jesus has the best game in town. Mm-hmm. This is this sounds marvelous. A monk traveling the world. So I came to this country then. And my superiors, like in the army, decided, wait a minute, you've had five years of Greek and five years of Latin, right? Oops, we want you to be a professor. I didn't come in to be a professor. I came in to be a monk and do what I was told. So, of course, fine, professor, whatever. So they sent me off to get my doctorate back to Ireland and then sent me for two years to Rome to specialize in exegesis and then two more years to Jerusalem to to specialize in archaeology. And that was heavenly. I was all over the the Middle East in the 60s, all over you know, Europe in the early 60s. I saw the whole world as a monk, as it were. Yeah. So I had a marvelous education at a time when you could travel all over the Middle East, by the way, in the early 60s. this I was there from 65 to 67. I was in Jerusalem till 67, till the day before the war. And then I could say I left, but the technical term is ran, I think, fled. <laughs> out because we were told by our by our consulates you're on your own if you stay beyond tomorrow and that was sunday morning yeah so basically my then after 19 years as a monk i guess i finally decided that celibacy was vastly overrated and i decided to leave the monastery but i loved being a scholar they had made me a scholar and that's what i wanted to spend my life mm-hmm. so the excitement that was there in the very beginning remained as the excitement of scholarship and especially focusing on the historical Jesus, earliest Christianity. Well, getting getting to that, so you you wrote a book with Marcus Borg years ago, and I can't remember the exact publication date, about Christmas and the Advent story, and that's kind of what I'd like to center on, kind of the early story of Jesus, and maybe um, how we should interpret it, kind of how it stands in contrast in the Scripture, and specifically, and you alluded to it earlier, but I want to save this question for last, but I'll go ahead and give it to you now so you can collect your thoughts, is I genuinely wonder how we as Americans sit well with celebrating the birth of a man that was God that literally upended the system against imperialism as we sit, you and I both talking, in one of the biggest imperial nations in the history of the planet. But I will save that one towards the end. I'll restate it at the end. So when we... when we before before you get off it, and then we will get off it, mm-hmm. just remember that as a country, we, we were founded on an act of superb hypocrisy, say, saying with our independence, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for everyone. Mm-hmm. We still had slavery. I mean, I understand the, the politics involved mm-hmm. in getting independence from England, but let's be very clear. We started off with a very good experience in hypocrisy. Mm. That, that we have to face as a pastor and our national character. Now, come, come back to where you are. <laughs> we, we will. How should I, as a middle-aged American in the West, engage in the Christmas story? Because there's, there's two different ones. Every year, I feel like it's a trite spectacle that we mm-hmm. roll out for the Advent season. And so yeah. what am I missing when I begin to even engage in the text of the birth of Jesus? Yeah, you're right. We trotted out like the Christmas decorations. It's nice. And at the end of it, we either dumped them or put them back in the attic. Now, the way I approach that question is this. First of all, what is Luke and Matthew up to? And why does Mark and John not have a good Christmas story too? Mm-hmm. Like ourselves. Now, I'm starting with the first century. I'm trying to get into the minds of the four people who give us versions of the gospel. There's only one gospel, which is Jesus, but it's according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So we, we don't have four gospels, by the way. We have one gospel and four versions. All right, every gospel starts with what I'm going to call an overture. That's like a preamble. That's to get you in there. Um, Mark, for example, tells the story of John the Baptist, and that's going to get you ready for, wow, John the Baptist was killed, was executed. So you see already, boy, this is not going to go too well. John and the other, so he doesn't have a Christmas story in that sense, but he has a prologue. Mm-hmm. John has the same one with that magnificent hymn about in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos became the, the dream of God for the world became incarnate in Jesus. He is a prologue. Now, two of them, Matthew and Luke, have prologues which are actually stories. They're prologues, though. The reason they are completely different, and anyone who reads them carefully, can see immediately the story in Luke is told completely from Mary's point of view. She has an enunciation. The angel comes to her. 
in Matthew's point of view, it's about the father. It comes through the father. Everything is about Joseph. So what's going on? I can't get these two stories together. Can't they get their acts together? No, because each one is a deliberate, now my term is very careful, parabolic overture to their own gospel. Mm-hmm. It's like Luke knows what he's going to say. In fact, he's going to say a two-volume gospel, Luke and Acts. And when he's got it written, then he says to himself, okay, what do I write as a prologue to this gospel? Because some poor guy is going to have to take this in a, in a manuscript that's written in wall-to-wall characters without any um, verses or, or chapters or anything. And I'm going to, up front, I'm going to tell him in two verses, here's what's going on. It's like you or I, if we write a book, the last thing we write in the book is Paula, which by a marvelous feat is exactly what's going to happen in the book. We can tell them flawlessly what will happen because it's written last, of course. If you write your prologue first, it's not going to work. So what you have in Luke 1 and 2, what you have in Matthew 1 and 2, those chapters, are specifically written parables. I'm emphasizing parables. Of course, they're dealing with historical characters, Mm -hmm. Jesus, but uh, Mary, Joseph, uh, Herod. These are real characters. But Matthew is thinking, and the reason I know what he's thinking is because I've read him very carefully. Then I've read his first two chapters, and I see, okay, what you're doing here, Matthew, is giving me like an overture, as as if we're looking at an opera. And the first little part, is a medley of all the music we're going to hear. So we'll recognize it later. So when you tell me, Matthew, that Jesus is king of the Jews, that the Magi come to Herod and say, we're looking for king of the Jews. When, by the way, of course, Herod's title, officially titled from Rome, is king of the Jews. So what they've just done, whether they know it or not, is committed rhetorical <laughs> treason, as it were. Mm-hmm. We're looking for somebody else. So the only next time I'm going to find in Matthew's gospel, that term, king of the Jews, is on the cross above Jesus's head. So when I read Matthew 1 and 2, I find it to be a superb, magnificent, couldn't do better if you thought about it, encapsulation of what's coming in Matthew. Yeah. Now, turn it over to Luke. Of course, Luke has a different version of the gospel. Could he use Matthew's upfront? No, no way. Now, where do they both agree, though? And now we're getting close to your, your final question, even though we're not there. Where do they both agree? Well, let me go back to what I just said about Matthew. It opens with an act of treason. King of the Jews is a title that can only be conferred by Rome. It was given to Herod the Great. It was then given later to Herod Agrippa I. It was given to nobody else, and to assume it would have been treason. Mm-hmm. And that's probably what gets Jesus killed, because he's talking about the kingdom of God. And any Roman would think, well, you must kind of think you're a king, though I think you're a joke as a king, but just to be safe, we have a public <laughs> ritual of execution. So then I look over at Luke, and I find he mentions Augustus, Caesar the Augustus, And right after that, the angels come down and announce peace on earth with the birth of Jesus. But Rome had announced peace on earth as the program of Caesar. In fact, came with his birth, Mm -hmm. the Pax Romana. So now, if I look at these two and don't get hung up for the moment on their differences or why they're there or any other reason, if I was reading this as a Roman censor, I would get immediately... This is subversive stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether I have to take it very seriously or not, but it's subversive. Maybe it's funny, maybe it's not funny, but I haven't even got into the third chapter of Matthew or the third chapter of Luke. Yeah. And I'm seeing something in both of them that they're announcing some somebody called Jesus whose birth is an alternative king of the Jews to bring peace on earth. But we appointed Herod to be king of the Jews to keep peace, at least in, in Israel. So while we get hung up on the differences, which many ordinary people can't explain, though any scholar should be able to explain it to you, mm-hmm. 
that the differences are almost mandatory for their function, we ignore the similarity that each of them, and therefore the, the Gospels that come after them, of course, are going to explain to us why it's not a great surprise that this person whose birth we are celebrating is going to end up not just dead, because most people do, but on a Roman cross. Mm-hmm. And immediately that tells me two very important things, by the way, I'm looking ahead now from the story, but it's, it's already hinted there. For armed rebellions against them, the Romans killed the leader and everyone could get their hands on. It's like the story of Barabbas. He's in jail as an re- as armed rebel, and so are his followers. Of course, that's the way Rome acted. And then they crucify you all in a nice row. When they were dealing with unarmed rebellion, unarmed rebellion, what we might call an activist, mm-hmm. their civil law said, what we do for somebody, I'm quoting now, who creates a tumult or stirs up the people. We crucify them, we burn them, or we send them to the beasts, the arena, or if they're high ranking, we just exile them to an island. Yeah, so we, we silence them or we make an example of them, but we don't just flat out shoot them in the head. We don't just kill them quickly and peacefully. Don't quick, don't quick them peacefully, and we don't round up their followers. So if I only knew, you know, I know I'm jumping ahead to the end of the story, but already the hints are there. It's like that classic thing they say, if you find a gun in the first act, somebody's going to use it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If, if I get this tension in these opening stories between the Roman authority and this Jewish peasant, and it's not some kind of a joke, it's some kind of a claim of whose vision of the world should rule the world, then I know he's going to be dead by the end of the story. Yeah. And not just dead, crucifixion was a public ritual of state terrorism whose function was to warn you, don't do what this guy did or you'll end up like this guy had. That's why they'd bother the expense and the time of sending a squad of soldiers and staying there till the man was dead and iron nails and a whole thing. They wouldn't just garrot him in the barracks and toss his body over over the wall. This is a public ritual. Yeah. So if you read carefully in those opening stories, you already see a tension. And it's not just a tension between you know, Jesus and Pilate, or even Jesus and Caesar. It's what each one represents. It's their their programs, their platforms, their visions. Government now rests upon the shoulders of this baby's son. If I'm thinking of the birth narratives in, in the two Gospels as parabolic, is, does that imply that there's no history involved there at all? Is there no historical leanings or adeptness in that, that as a first century Christian or Jew or Roman, that I would have been able to go, yeah, that I remember people talking about that happening. Is it, is it all parable? Let me back off that very carefully, because most people, when they read what Marcus and I wrote in that book or what you said, come up with a long list of what didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Okay, no Magi, no Star, no this, no that, no mm-hmm. the other. Let me take as an example the well-known parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, of course, there were Samaritans. Of course, there were priests. Of course, there were Levites. Of course, there's a road from Jerusalem to Jericho, and those are two cities that were there in the first century, and yes, it does go down, 1,000 feet. And there were donkeys, by the way, and denarius. You could argue that every single thing in there, you might even say in the first century, yeah, and I stayed in that dumpy inn down there in Jericho. <laughs> you know, you could make your argument. In one sense, it's all historical, but the story is not historical. But any parable, to be a parable and not a fantasy, must be realistic. It must be realistic. It may stretch the boundaries, push you a bit. You might say, well, I don't think a Samaritan would do that. But anyway, 
So what you have in Luke and Matthew, the author is not the least bit interested in giving you historical data. Mm -hmm. But of course, Bethlehem is a real place. Now, here's an example. Jesus of Nazareth is the name. We have to start this story in Bethlehem. Why? History because he was born there? I don't think so. Because the great, most famous person who came out of Bethlehem was, of course, David. So that's like you and I saying, supposing we said of of a president, he thinks he was born in a log cabin. Now, immediately, I would not take that as a piece of autobiographical or biographical data. Mm -hmm. I think he thinks he's Lincoln because born in the log cabin has been kind of become iconic for him. So born in Bethlehem sends the message from Matthew and for Luke. This is another thing they agree on, by the way. New David, new improved David, David back. So whatever David did, this Jesus is going to do even better. Now, big question, how do we get him to Bethlehem? (laughs) I mean, you know, he's Jesus of Nazareth. Nobody says Jesus of Bethlehem. Each of them does it differently. Matthew simply takes it for granted that's where they were living. They were living in Bethlehem, and only afterwards, when they came back from Egypt, they moved to Nazareth. Okay, that makes sense. Luke doesn't know that. Luke knows the beginning of Nazareth. So he says they went there to be enrolled in the census that everyone knows about. And of course, <laughs> for 2,000 years, people have known, wait a minute, there was no census around 4 BCE. The census was in 6 CE. The Romans did not take over the record. And, you know, we go on this nauseating um, debate, all of which is like, like arguing whether two denarii in the Good Samaritan parable were enough for a couple of days' rent. Yeah. You want to scream. It's like if somebody said to Jesus at the end of the parable, excuse me, Jesus, did that really happen? <laughs> I can imagine Jesus going, yeah, yeah, yeah. here we go again. Another literalist. <laughs> uh, you know, like Jesus with the Good Samaritan parable, these person, two people have worked awfully hard to make a plausible story that makes the point they want. And there's a hard, hard core to that point, where Luke says, peace on earth, in the middle of the Pax Romana, he is saying, you ain't, you didn't do it, you didn't bring it. That's serious. Mm-hmm. So if somebody says to me, the census didn't take place, I, I want to say, get over it, would you? Would you get over it? You are reading a fiction are a parable. But like any parable, at the end of, say, the Good Samaritan, Jesus says, go and do likewise. Now, supposing I'm a literalist. Okay, go and do likewise. So I have to cruise up and down the high road between Jerusalem and Jericho. And and only that road. And only that road. I'm going down. I can't do it coming up. And I'm looking for somebody in the ditch. Now, that's absurd. You know, And I said everyone would laugh at it. And I don't want to sneer too much. But you're doing exactly the same thing when you look at Luke and and Matthew and say, I really don't think that there was a census at the time of the birth of Jesus. So so this whole stuff is rubbish. And if you can can view it as parable, then whether or not there was a census isn't really the point. It's not a contention. It's just, it's part of the story settled down. You're missing, you're seeing all, to use a bad metaphor, you're you're seeing all the trees and you're missing the forest. Or you're only seeing the forest and you're missing the tree that matters. Either way, you're missing, you're missing it. Now, I want to be very clear about this, though. We are very good at missing the point. Mm-hmm. Not just that, oh, wow, I'm so silly of me, I missed that. The point that we're missing is the point we want to miss. Mm. So let's debate by all means, though we usually don't do it about the Good Samaritan, but let's debate anything we want to debate, but not whether you help your enemy if you find him in the ditch. Yeah. Let's not get into that. Yeah. Let's not let's not even get into in a Jewish context, could there be good Samaritans? Uh, yeah. Oops, oops, oops. That's 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 now that's let's talk about something else. Let's talk about <laughs> whether two denarii is enough for a couple of days' rent. So it's not for me with Luke and Matthew that oh I wish people would take it as a parable rather than history. I would be willing to say to somebody, okay, take them both as history. 
Now you're happy. It happened exactly the way it said there. However, you put Matthew and Luke together, that's the way it happened. Now, what about whether Caesar is Lord of the world, mm-hmm. or whether he's brought peace on earth by victory and violence? Because the, the program, of course, of any empire, as you know, is we establish vi- victory, and after victory, we get peace. When yeah. we pacif- look at our word pacified. When we pacify a country, we know how to do it. Yeah, you, you get very quiet after you're dead. So imp- empires rule by victory. Yeah, and it is you could say peaceful. I think Jesus would have said, "No, it's not peaceful. It's just a lull until the next round." Yeah. So what we do when we avoid or even get into the bait, like we're talking about parable or history, I would almost say to a fundamentalist, "Okay, I, I don't want to argue about this. You take it literally." I will take it metaphorically. Could we not debate that for the moment? Could we talk about meaning? How do we get peace on earth? Hmm. Do we get it from Caesar the Augustus, whom Luke has just mentioned? Or do we get from Jesus? And what's the difference in their programs? Don't don't just talk while Jesus was Lord and Caesar wasn't. That's both both have the same title. So they're both making claims to a vision for the whole world. Now, to respect Caesar and to respect Jesus, I'm going to say, okay, I'm listening to two mega visions for how to run the world. I see the differences. And now I have to decide which vision I'm going to accept and try to live by. That's really the challenge, of course, of those two stories. Yeah. And maybe in one sense, I would almost want to say, could we bracket the questions of historicity, which are perfectly valid, by the way. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm quite ready to tell somebody to say, did the Magi come as it's told there? My own crack about that is no, because there are three men and they ask for directions in Jerusalem and men never do that. So that's <laughs> it's, it's, it's the one time people, <laughs> I mean, they're following their star, as you know, and then they stop in Jerusalem to ask directions. What happens to the star? The reason, of course, they have to stop in Jerusalem is because otherwise they can't ask the key verse. Where is he born? Who is king yeah. of the Jews? If they just keep following the star and turn left at Jerusalem and go south to Bethlehem, well, everything is lovely, but we haven't, we've lost the point of the story. So something I struggle with, and it's Kyle Roberts' fault, uh, a previous guest of the show, he wrote a book, a bo- a book. he wrote a book about the virgin uh, conception or uh, the virgin birth or whatever whatever verb you want to use. And so I feel like as I was reading through your book that you wrote with Marcus and just thinking more about it, I feel like if it's parable that the authors are just conscripting in what they need to from the Old Testament to fulfill prophecy. Am I wrong in reading that or hearing that? Or, or how do I sit with that? If it's parable, how am I fulfilling any form of prophecy of the coming messiah okay let me look at both of them together for a moment and then look at matthew specifically because this is another thing both of them agree on by the way the virginal conception i'm using the term now precisely virginal conception is what we're talking about people Mm -hmm. say virginal birth that's something else virginal conception if i were in court of law and the judge said to me now i'm tired of all this bickering and scholarship i want to know yes or no crossing do you or do you not believe in the virginal conception of Jesus? I would say, yes, Your Honor. And I'd be thinking, because I know what it means, Your Honor, and I bet you don't. Here's what's going on. We are, again, we are dealing with parable. But again, it's subversive parable. Because in the, in the ancient world, if a person had achieved a great rank or status, and they were trying to tell his whole story, it, doesn't seem too prosaic to say, well, his, his mother and his father had a little bit too much wine for dinner one evening and so, so et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> We want something magnificent. So in the Jewish tradition, a revered person, Samuel, for example, would be born of ancient and infertile parents. Aged and infertile, which, by the way, would be quite a miracle because that's, that's checkable. <laughs> You know, if you're both 99 and a baby is produced, yeah, there might be hospital records, as it were. That's the Jewish tradition. The Roman tradition, of course, or the Greco-Roman tradition, is that if the great person like Augustus or even Alexander, then 
a god and a human woman have produced in my intercourse. When the first Christians, and there were Jewish Christians, of course, wanted to say, our Jesus is better than anything in his own tradition before him, or the Greco-Roman tradition before him, they came up with something new. They came up with a virginal conception. Not aged parents, they never say Joseph and Mary are 99, as it were. They don't say a God had intercourse with Mary. And by the way, in, in the story, in Luke, the God at least has the courtesy to ask her permission. <laughs> Most Greco-Roman stories, the God just doesn't, and that's it. It's basically divine rape is what the best. Private. So what they're trying to say by virginal conception is this person is extraordinary within both the Jewish, his own Jewish, and the Greco-Roman tradition. Now, I, as a Christian, accept that. That's why I'm a Christian. If I thought Jesus was just a nice guy, I think he's a nice guy. So if you believe in the virginal conception, but of course I'm not talking literally. Of course not. I'm talking metaphorically or parabolic, whichever term you want. But that is what, that is what they were saying. And, and by the way, I also leave these ancient people a fair amount of ignorance about the exact mechanics. Of course, they knew it involved a man. Of course, they knew it involved a, wo a woman. And of course, they knew it involved emissions in both cases. But before we knew about the thing, <laughs> the, the egg and everything else, I think an ancient person would have no problem saying, actually, that Joseph and Mary are any other couple had intercourse, but the child born was the son of God because somehow God intervened. Mm -hmm. And it wouldn't be as crude as intercourse or anything else like that because it was all very vague how exactly the internal mechanics took place, should I say? So I don't know if a person in the first century would have a problem with saying, Joseph was the father, and he was son of God. Am I wrong? I feel like I am. I might not be. And I remember one time doing research on this, but if you trace Joseph's lineage back, that's how you get back to David. Mary, not so much. And so how, yes. how do I call him son of David or descendant of David without Joseph? But Joseph is so very little, so little is said about Joseph in the story. Yeah. But to me, that's the that's the pivot to David. It is, but and I didn't. Course, write, but I didn't write it. So, but Matthew, Matthew, of course, is the one who gives the genealogy, emphasizing back to David, and he gives it up front. You begin the story with David. In Luke, he only tells it much later, and he takes him back to Adam. Mm -hmm. For for Luke, and it's in chapter three, I think it is, or something. But it, it's it's not the opening of his story, as it were. So Matthew is the one, of course, who takes him back to David. And, you know, you can't quite have it both ways. If he's son of David, biologically, like I said, though, he could be, I think, son of David, excuse me, son of Joseph, that is son of David, biologically, but son of God theologically. Yeah. Because we're really not dealing with the biology of Mary. We're not really dealing with the biology of Mary, but the theology of Jesus. Why do, why does Paul, or anyone else for that matter, really never really talk about the miraculousness of Jesus's birth? He mostly seems to focus on, here's what Jesus and the Christ did, and so now here's what we do. Is there was there less importance at that time than what we put on it now, or? Why would he not? Because obviously the guy was relatively smart. I mean, he argued for his—he argued for his life everywhere he went. Well, let, let me put it this way: Paul is writing in the fifties. Matthew is writing in the eighties, and Luke could be writing any time from the eighties into the first century. Let me put it bluntly: nobody had invented the story because nobody—I mean, obviously, of course they. The virginal conception was there, I think, mm -hmm. already. And the story about birth, quotation marks, birth at Bethlehem, but you simply could say, as Paul does say that, in terms of David. So the story that we have in Luke 1 and 2 and Matthew 1 and 2 was only written when those Gospels were, I would be ready to say, already written 
And these were their preambles, their overtures, their prologues. So in the same way that in most books I've ever written, if I put a prologue, it gets the last thing written. Yeah. Well, and for and for those listening, the prologue to each episode is usually two weeks after the episode so that I can marinate on it and figure out what exactly I need to say to buffer the conversation before people have it. Really no different. Yeah, if you if you were to say, suppose you would say what I'm going to say, what I'm going to say now, it would be quite miraculous if you came up with an exact description of what I've said beforehand. I'm very but, good like that. I feel like I might could do it. <laughs> <laughs> You could claim prophetic powers and say, of course I can do it. I have the prophetic power of editing, but I could, I'm, I'm sure I could figure it out. Exactly. It's the prophetic power of editing. And then afterwards, if you wanted to claim, I wrote this before and I was inspired to know what was coming, how could I disprove it? Unless, you know, you're on a computer and I can, I can check. <laughs> Fair it. enough. Yeah. Today we can find out stuff. Not to not to get off topic from that then, so if I think about the two huge um, events, pivotal world-changing events of Christmas and Easter, and if Paul really never really gives much emphasis to Christmas, but he seems to really talk about the death, the burial, the resurrection, the implications of Easter, is Easter more important than Christmas? Absolutely. Absolutely. Any Christian in the long history who is, is a good theologian would have said absolutely. Yeah. And again, the fact that we have found no way, how should I put this, of trivializing, no, no, not of trivializing, because Easter bunnies and eggs and all of that is, is, <laughs> is annoying. It's an incredible you know, trivialization. We, ha- we really haven't done that to, because Christmas is still associated, at least in the best sense, with gift giving. So, in the best sense of the word, Yes, this in a, in a way is the gift of what Jesus gave to the world. So if, if you're going to associate gift giving, even presents and all the rest of it, even the absolute commercialization that happens at Christmas, there's a tenuous connection. But I can't get much to Easter eggs right. and Easter bunnies, except we've given up. We just can't handle it. Yeah, well, I'm I'm glad that it hasn't been trivialized um, at all. So, getting back to that question that I started with, that I've I've on purpose tried not to circle back around to. Okay. If I'm in America, and if, and I asked Brian Zahn this question, you know, I feel like uh, most Americans feel like when we read scripture that we're Israel, that somehow we're the ones being oppressed. And we always miss the fact that, no, we're probably Rome in this story, or we're Babylon in this story, or we're Pharaoh in this story. We are the ones beating down people and usurping uh, privilege. We are the ones that, uh, through victory of aggression, we pacified the uh, Native Americans in America, and we, we did it because we felt like it, because God called us to do this. And uh, and getting back to what you said earlier, you know, peace through victory. Um, so... How do we, this year, I mean, by the time people are listening to this, it should come out around Christmas. So how do we change the way that we do Christmas now to realize that we're celebrating the birth and arrival of the Christ of the universe that came to literally justify things, not through aggression and conquering, but through justice and through mercy? How do we reconnect it to where it should be, as opposed to some trite parade of happy feelings and really pretty songs and get back really to the theology of the purpose of the birth. We have to do two things. What one we'll be talking about here, we have just to learn how to read what these people were saying. And then, I mean, I'm quite willing to read a biblical author and say, I disagree. What I'm not willing to do is say, well, they're saying something else. I think it's, it's honest and sincere to say, I know what Jesus is saying. I don't think I can live up to it. Rather than say, oh, no, he's just saying, you know, peace is a nice idea. Give it, give it a chance, but if it doesn't work, what the heck? We always have a war. Hmm. No, you have to take seriously what he's saying. The other thing I think, let me back up for a second. I came to this country as a student in 1951. I didn't become a citizen of this country until the year 2000. So, yes, I've chosen to live in this country and to be in this country and to be a citizen of this country. I, could have stayed as a, on a green card, I suppose. 
I think we have to take an awful look at ourselves. I knew the British Empire, of course, coming out of Ireland. And all empires are a little bit hypocritical. We always come to civilize you. We always come in your best interests. You are barbarians before and we're bringing your peace and order and law and civilization. I know all that stuff. Every empire there's ever been has said that. We did something extraordinary, as I mentioned earlier. In our Declaration of Independence, we made a theological statement about everyone, not just about us. We didn't simply say, like the Irish Declaration of Independence, we have a right to be free, you know, <laughs> England go home. Hmm. We didn't say that. We, I, if you compare the Irish Declaration of Independence with the American, the extraordinary thing in the American is that declaration that everyone has a right to this. All are created equal. All are endowed with their creator. And we have it, of course, in the uh, Pledge of Allegiance, Liberty and Justice for All. So it's quintessential American, but we've never quite faced what I said before, that there's a profound, maybe a necessary, maybe a politically expedient, in that document, please, let's not talk about slavery. Mm -hmm. I, I'm not being, you know, sitting here now, 2,000 years later, I'm just, I'm just saying, let's realize it. Maybe that was the cost of independence, but it was a huge cost, and we have to face it. Because otherwise, that impregnates our national DNA with hypocrisy. And so it keeps coming up again and again and again. We're doing all of this just for the good of the world, that we are the nicest people around. And very often we are, by the way. Facing a disaster, we're, we're good. Mm -hmm. We are really good. We're not good, though, on facing that imperialism or the attempt to control others is never, ever for their own benefit. It's never. And it, it never works for their own benefit. So I think two things to face Christmas. We have to face honestly the challenge that comes in those stories. And at least not say they're saying something else. They're not saying have a good time at Christmas. They're saying peace on earth. That's what they're saying. And they're saying it comes from heaven. I'm not, not taking that literally. If it comes from heaven, it doesn't come from armies or empires. So we have to look at that head on. And then we have to look at ourselves. And maybe, you know, maybe by Christmas this year, please God, we may be ready to do it really seriously. If, I, if we were ready to do that, I don't even know what the planet would look like. But my, our church, we used some of the episodes of this show and we talked about uh, a little bit about gratitude and an economy of gratitude as freely given. You know, everyone's invited to the table and bring what you have. And what you have is more than enough, and there will even be more than you need if everybody just brings what they have. Talking about, you know, where Jesus feeds uh, the multitudes, and you, know, you just brought what you had, and we, how about this? We didn't run out. This is, that that may be a bigger miracle, that not, not specifically the number of people, but just that there's an economy there, and in God's economy, there's abundance. And we talked about how if we would just re revert giving away things that we could literally with overnight if we meant it we could everybody would have clean drinking water if we actually meant it if i could get people in yemen to stop bickering about this or the other we could overnight help all of those people that are starving in one of the worst famine that exists but we can't because we continue to be imperial and we continue to want to fight over whatever we want to fight about and if we yeah it's something we're inherently good at um, I really do hope that by Christmas we figure out a way to genuinely want to engage in active peace on earth as opposed to just peace in Virginia or peace in Florida or peace in my county. Um, I really do hope that you're right. I hope that we're right. Thank you so much for coming on. I hope to do it again sometime, um, possibly on on a different topic. But um, thank you so much for your Sunday afternoon. I, I appreciate it. It was more than a pleasure. Thank you very much, Seth. You know, I'm not really sure how to end December and this show for the year. So I'll leave you with this. I really hope that you all have been challenged and has grown in your faith as much as I have this year. And it doesn't really matter what direction you've grown in. 
I hope that you all will and will continue to have a blessed year as we close this one out. And I cannot wait to see what's in store for next year. Be well, be blessed for the remainder of 2018, and I'll talk with you soon. See